we in a biblical mindset, we think of the United Kingdom not as as Scotland and England and Wales and Northern Ireland, but rather of the 12 tribes when they are united as one. We know um, Saul, Israel's first king, David, uh, Solomon, were the only three kings to see United Kingdom. And that only lasted 110 years. And then um, Rehoboam, he wants to drive taxes up. Jeroboam takes the 10 northern tribes and they become Israel. Uh, Rehoboam has the two southern tribes. They are referred to as Judah. Judah contains Jerusalem. And in that, the people of Judah are still able to worship God in the prescribed manner. Right. But nevertheless, they're still not doing that. Right. There is a prescribed manner that is given to the Israelites. They received the oracles of God. They were delivered from Egypt. They saw the thunderous clouds on the top of Sinai. They heard the voice that shook the land so bad that they said, Moses, if we hear it again, we'll die. Just go talk to him, please. Just go talk to him. Right. And how quickly they forget, how quickly they forget their father loves them so much and he redeems them. He buys them out of their own slavery, the things that they've sold themselves to. And so at this point, um, there is there's three sieges on Israel, on Judah. Um, the, the northern tribes have already been taken captive. The southern tribes. So Babylon comes in in 705 B.C. and they take. They, they siege Jerusalem, and they take people away. They take Daniel, and Daniel goes down. By the point that Ezekiel starts his book, Daniel's already, he's in a place of power. He's been, he's been established. He's prophesying on the name of the Lord. He's being faithful. He's, he's risen up inside of King Nebuchadnezzar's house. Um, he's received the oracles from God. He's, he's, he's explained the dreams to the king. He's saying, surely, Babylon's, uh, excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar saying, surely Daniel's God is the God of the whole earth, right? So that's already been, that's been recognized. And um, he kept himself pure. He was the man that overcame the flesh, right? He, he resisted the desire for the king's table. He didn't eat of the king's table. He said, just give me the plants. I'll just live on plants. And by, by God's grace, I will be sustained and I will be, just come back and check on me later. I will be sustained and I will serve you. Um, to the greatest degree possible. And, and this is what, and of course I'm paraphrasing, you guys know that. But um, this, is, th- this happens inside of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's house. So anyway, um, in the second siege, Daniel, excuse me, Daniel's already gone. The second siege, Ezekiel now goes. He's in Babylon during this captivity, during this book. He's already in Babylon. It says that he's been there five years. The second siege happened roughly nine years after, um, a little less. It was... Uh, 697 BC. And then there was a third siege. And this is the one that he's warning everyone about because there's still these false prophets. You guys, you guys know, we have to know we're in the book of Jeremiah uh, during, during the week. Jeremiah is still in Israel. He's, he's still in Jerusalem. He is still prophesying to a rebellious people. He's saying, look, you guys have these false prophets. They're telling you things that you want to hear. They're telling you ways to get that you're going to be delivered, right? Don't worry about it. God delivered us from the Assyrians. He brought one angel, killed 185,000 in one night. That's the message that they're saying. They're saying, no, we're going to be fine. We're God's covenant people. God's going to save us. Don't worry about it. And people like that. And you guys know why people like that. 
people like that because they don't have to change the way they're living. They don't have to change the direction that they're facing. They don't have to believe that the invisible realm is greater than what we can see in front of us. They don't have to believe that. They don't have to walk by faith. They don't have to say that God is greater than the things that he's created. Go figure. The creator is better than the creation. That is what, that's what Jeremiah is saying, and that is what Daniel has said. This is what Ezekiel is going to say, and Ezekiel's risen up. No doubt he knows Jeremiah, although he never refers to him. In this, we're going to see uh, a man who, who's broken. He's a young man, but he's raised up. He's supposed to be a priest, and he never gets to fulfill that. Well, uh, we'll start in verse 1. Go figure. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Chebar, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. And what I love about this, guys, is um, I read it over and over again because I've read this first chapter before. And I've heard some weird things. Maybe you have too. I won't bring them up. If you have weird things that you want to talk about that relate to this I'm definitely open to it because I know people have been sucked into weird things. Anyway, um, I'll, I'll briefly mention it. I'll, I'll touch on it in a bit. But initially, the first thing I want to I point out is that this doesn't say in the 13th year of such and such a king, excuse me, 30th, or the 30th year of the captivity, or scholars uh, widely agree, not everyone, there's some debate, but scholars widely agree that this came to pass in the 30th year of Ezekiel. And why is that important? So Ezekiel was raised to be a priest. We've already talked about that. They're raised, they're instructed from youth in their priestly duties. By the time they're called into the ministry where they actually get to serve, that is in their 30th year. In verse 2, it says, On the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Je Je Jehoiakim's captivity. Right? I'm only referencing that. We'll talk more about that. But they're already in captivity five years. So... If this, and I, I firmly I firmly believe Ezekiel's 30th year, the year in which he, he turned 30 years old, he's been there five years. He celebrated his fifth birthday in Babylon. All the things, guys, that he built his childhood upon, all the things that he aspired to do, all the plans that he made, everything that he thought found valuable tangibly in his life, was stripped from him at 25 years old. We have a godly young man who lost everything, seemingly, at 25 years old. And it says he's, and it, it gives us the, the, the exact year, the day, the month, right? If you guys, and you should, if you have met your husband or your wife, you should remember the day that you met them, at least the day you married them. Right. Um, if you've had an experience with God, the way Ezekiel is going to explain in this chapter, you're never going to forget the day or the month. It's no, it's not going to happen. When God reveals Himself to you, the way He reveals Himself to Ezekiel in this chapter to remind him, I'm still there, and we'll we'll talk more about why that's so important to Ezekiel. You're not going to forget it. This is what Ezekiel needs right now because there are so many people. There's false prophets in Jerusalem. There's false prophets in Babylon. And, and um, Jeremiah ends up being taken to Egypt, right? Because he's telling them, don't call on the Egyptians. 
and this is a different book, but he's just saying, don't call on them to help you fight against Babylon. You have to submit because this judgment is coming from God. All these people, they're thinking God's forsaken us. God's not present. There's a man who's turned 30 years old and his life's dreams have shattered. Guys, who can't relate to that in some small facet or some huge one? I could go on a huge tangent about when uh, growing up, all I all I loved was sports. That's all I did. I dreamed sports. You can ask my mom. I owned 150 baseballs, six baseball bats, four baseball gloves, five different pairs of mat, uh, batting gloves. I I was gonna. I probably wasn't, but I was gonna play shortstop for the Boston Red Sox. I just that was my. I was just gonna do it. Probably wasn't. I'm just saying. You know that was that's how I spoke. In a car accident at 16, uh, so bad I forgot pretty much the the entire next three months. I remember a little bit of Thanksgiving and Christmas, but I forget most of it. My memory was so bad, my short-term memory. Everything was seemingly stripped for me. Lost hand-eye coordination, lost short-term memory. I failed all of my classes. Yeah, I think I might have passed gym, but anyway. <laughs> I failed most of my classes. Um, guys, think. Who hasn't been there? Who hasn't had something like that happen? What are you doing now? I'm not saying what you're doing now isn't awesome. I'm not saying what you're doing now, the place that God has you right now isn't incredible and God isn't using you. Think of the people that you've met and that you've got to have these amazing conversations with and you've you've been able to see God work in your life. But is that what you dreamed of being when you were five? I'm not, again, I'm not saying it's not awesome, but you got to remember, you got to realize Ezekiel's had what he dreamt of. Everything that he aspired to do is stripped from him. And what he's now hearing from Jeremiah is that the temple is going to be leveled. Six more years and the temple is destroyed. Babylon goes back in for a third time in 986 BC and they level the temple. There's 11 years of ministry between the time where Ezekiel's taken out of Jerusalem, taken out of Judah, and he starts, he, he begins his journey apart from what he thought was his life's calling. And he's got to find himself right now. And what we're going to find is that when everyone's saying, you know, when everyone's thinking God's forsaken us, right? And the people are saying, don't worry about repentance because this isn't as bad as it seems. It's just going to get better. But there are other people like, what's going on? Is God's word failed? What what we're going to see here with Ezekiel is that God's right there. First verse still says, so this is, again, this is the 30th year. This is the fourth month, the fifth day of the month. I was among the captives, brought out of his land, brought out of the place where he he aspired to minister by the river Chebar, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. So just think. And I'm, I'm going on, but just think of everything that he knew up to this point. Think of, I don't know how long some of you, I don't know how long everyone's been in this church, but I know a lot of faces have been here for a long time. Think of all the things that we have received through the, the godly teaching in this church, the things that we've learned the things that we've grown in, the way we're able to explain the scripture to people, we're able to explain to people why it is Jesus couldn't be king when he first came. You know, we're able to tell people why it is that we need the blood sacrifice 
of Jesus Christ in order to be justified to God. You think of all the things that you learned in a church where the word is exalted, and yet sometimes that isn't enough. It's, it's not going to satisfy you. And what Ezekiel's realizing here is this isn't just about head knowledge. This is about the heavens being opened. Right now, walking on cheap, so where it says the river Chebar, this is actually a canal. There's two main rivers. There's the Tigris, the Euphrates, and down in Babylon, they built these canals off for irrigation to water their plants, right? So you can imagine on one of these canals where we're told Ezekiel has, he has a house. We're actually told he has a wife. He's kind of settled down, but he's walking along the canal. You can imagine this is a daily routine. Maybe it's not, but I imagine it is. This is a man who's gotten so used to routine. This is how things are going to be done. This is how I'm going to minister, right? And it's stripped away, and now he's just, he's in, he's in Babylon. Where can he go? He's in Babylon. He's a captive. And now the heavens open. It says, and I saw the visions of God. What God is doing right now is he's taking all of Ezekiel's education, all of Ezekiel's knowledge, Everything that Ezekiel has spent his entire life up until this point trying to understand about God, about the sacrifices, about the temple, right? About um, the incense and and the presence of God and his deliverance and his willingness to self-sacrificially bow down to a people that are stiff-necked, right? And and to help them. He's, He's taking all that knowledge and he's making it a reality, Ezekiel is in a place where it's so hard to see God. That's what we have to remember in this book. It is so hard to see God in captivity when everything's going wrong and nothing seems like there's going like there's any silver lining on anything. God is showing him right now that everything you've learned about me, that is the God I still am. Everything you've read in the writings of Moses, that is a God I still am. I desire to work in your life that way. Just trust me. And this is, it is incredible. On the fifth day of the month, verse two, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity. Oh, and so Ezekiel's name, by the way, means God strengthens, right? And uh, a lot of the time we don't realize, we don't realize just how much we need God's strength until we're in some sort of captivity. Right. It was it was Paul who who prayed three times. He said, I prayed three times on behalf of the thorn in my flesh. I asked God to deliver me from it. And he said, uh, he said, my grace is my my grace is sufficient. He said, in weakness, my strength is made perfect. And, and Paul said, therefore, I glory, I boast in the grace of God. I, I, I boast in my weaknesses and in my infirmities because in so. This is a rough paraphrase, but you guys know what I mean. It's it's 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And so uh, the strength of God is manifest in my life. And so this is Ezekiel. God strengthens. The word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzai, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chebar. And the hand of the Lord was upon him there. And you'll see that over and over again. Seven times you see in this book where Ezekiel is telling about the things that have happened, the things that they're going to experience. And so initially, the, the Lord is calling Ezekiel to this ministry, right? The first three chapters are about his call. The next section is about his, his call to the, Isra- the Israelites who have been in captivity to repent, right? To rectify the problem, that is departure from God. And then it's, it's the, the, there's a third section. There's four sections. The third section of the book 
talks about um, the chastisement of all the nations because they've, they've treated Israel improperly, improperly, poorly. And then the fourth one being the reconciliation of all things. Is, is God reconciling all things? And, you know, this book gets so much attack because it's such a vivid, such a profound book, and it has so much imagery in it. And, and people think that it's got to be corrupt, right? The things that are spoken of in it, um, they have to be added at a later date because they are so accurate in so many ways. Um, and it is because, again, Ezekiel is a man who uses a lot of visual. And we're going to see that now as we get into this revelation. He sees of God as he comes down, as he makes himself visually evident to him. But what you hear in Amos chapter, Amos chapter 8, verse 11, is that there wasn't a famine of the word of the Lord in Israel. That wasn't what they were suffering from. It was a famine of the hearing of the word of the Lord in Israel. So the word was everywhere. That people, people had the ability to get to it. They had the ability to absorb it. They didn't have the willingness to absorb it. it, it does that not characterize our society? How much, I mean, how often do you guys go to work and hear someone say something and, and they're quoting scripture and they don't even know it, right? And you just get to say, you know why Jesus said that? Can we talk? Do you know where that comes from? Right. And, and like, um, I think it's Francis Bacon, uh, Francis Bacon is often misquoted when um, people say knowledge is power. It's actually Francis Bacon was known for saying God's knowledge is power or knowledge is God's power. And it is through the knowledge of him. It is through godly revelation that we come to have victory over things in our life and our surroundings. And, um, that is what's going on is there's not a famine of the word of the Lord. Everyone has access to it. We have it, right? We have Christian radio stations and we got our Christian t-shirts and we have our Bibles, you know, some, some motels have them in every drawer. There's not a famine of the word of God, but there's a famine of the hearing. And so what Ezekiel ends up being is he's a very visual prophet. He uses visuals all through this. He has visions he has a very profound vision here. He has another vision in chapter 10 that kind of explains more of what goes on in here. But he's a very visual prophet. And because, as Amos tells us, there is a famine of the hearing of the word of God, he's going to use visuals to talk to the children of Israel. There's a time where um, the Lord says, pronounce judgment upon them by going and lying on your right side. He tells them to do it for 390 days. And that's going to be um, the time of, of judgment in years for Israel, and then it's on your left side. Excuse me, as a part. And then he says, "Roll over, lay on your right side." And for every day you lay on your right side, that'll be the number of years there'll be judgment on Judah. And so, and there's other things. There's like ten different illustrations. There's um, another one about cooking his food with human waste, and that's awfully pleasant. He ends up conceding and saying, "Okay, you know, well, you can you can use cow dung." And Ezekiel's like. Oh, thank God. But anyway, um, so he is this visual prophet, right? And uh, guys, I'm not trying to condemn anyone, but I've been into many churches. I'm thinking of one in particular, but I'm sure you guys have seen the same thing where every season or every book they're in, it's like a, it's a different play set in the room. Like there's they're spending thousands of dollars on the money in the room, or even the pastors are getting up there and... Um, they're, they're riding bikes on stage or they're throwing things to try and get people's attention. And 
there, I'm not saying anything against, and I, I don't think any of you would disagree with me. There's nothing wrong with making your church building looking really appealing, making it presentable. But when you have to turn your building into an arcade or you have to turn it into a theme park in order to get people's attention, the indictment is on us. The problem is not with the surroundings. And that is what God is saying to Ezekiel. The problem is with our hearts. Are we willing to hear the word of God? Are we willing to, to have faith that it is the thing that will bring us life, that will deliver us from our own circumstance, that being our own heart most of the time? Because at the end of the book, it's like one of my favorite verses. God talks about the new covenant. It's toward the end. It's, there's 48 chapters in, in chapter 36. He talks explicitly about the covenant, the new covenant that he's going to make and how it will apply to the nation of Israel. And it's by him, his word, entering into our hearts, giving us a new heart, a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. Guys, we don't need, we don't need arcades to, you know, we don't need entertainment to change. We don't need entertainment to grab our attention. We need to be on our face and ask God to change the direction of our heart. And that is, that is, um, Something that God's going to do with Ezekiel because the people of Israel aren't willing to listen. He's going to make him a very visual prophet that'll that'll use illustrations and no doubt get their attention, cause them to lay down in the middle of the street, probably at the most busy time of the day, every day for 390. That's more than a year. The same guys laying on his left side in the middle of the road for 390 days straight. You guys won't listen to me. I'm just going to lay here, right? No one's going to forget that. But the reason they have to go through it is because they weren't willing to hear in the first place. Verse 4 says, Then I look and behold, the difference is, of course, the word of the Lord came to him, and he, he is hearing. That's verse 3. The word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel. But verse 4, Then I look and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with a raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it in a radiant and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. So as we get into this, what we're going to see is we're seeing the presence of God come. And this is huge again, because remember, remember the context. This is a man who thinks everything has been thrown off. Right. People are doing what they want. People are still listening to prophets who are prophesying in the name of the Lord, but not hearing from the Lord. And things are off the rails. And it says, um, well, like the light in verse six, each of each one had four faces. And each one had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. The hands of a man were under their wings and on their, four, on their four sides, and each of their four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each went straight forward. As for the lightness of their faces, each had the face of a man. Each, had, each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side. and Each of the four had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces. Their wings stretched upward to Two wings of each, one touched one another, and one covered their bodies. And each one went straight forward, and, and they went wherever the Spirit wanted to go, and they did not turn when they went. So there's this massive whirlwind coming, what does it say, out of the north? 
Um, then I looked and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with a raging fire engulfing itself. There's a massive whirlwind, and they see these, he sees these four creatures. And these four creatures we learn in chapter 10 are cherubim, which is just the plural of cherub. Um, it is an angelic creature. We're told in uh, Ezekiel 28 that Lucifer, before he fell, was the anointed cherub. He was an angelic creature that led worship in the garden. These four creatures, they are, um, when, when you see them in the scripture, because you see them here, you see them at the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve are cast out. You also see them in the book of Revelation before the throne of God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? And they always, they seem to guard the presence of God. They seem to make reference or um, allow us, remind us that the presence of God is here. And at this point, all he sees, all he's describing are these four creatures. He goes on to describe what they're like, and it, it sounds kind of sci-fi-ish. But if you guys recall from Exodus, as Will's talking to us about the encampment and in the desert, um, as the nation of Israel is traveling in the desert for 40 years, at the center of the encampment is the tabernacle. It is the presence of God. It is it is a very crude representation of God's throne. It's where God is dwelling. It is where God is meeting man, right? And then all around the tabernacle, the tribes are assigned to set up in a certain way. Three tribes around each side of the tabernacle, one north, one east, one south, one west. It'd be backwards for you guys, so I apologize for the hand gestures, but you get what I'm saying. And to each of the three tribes, they're all underneath one banner. And um, each of the banners, is it, it assigns to one of the, the faces of these four creatures. So there is, there's the ox, there's the lion, there's the eagle, and there's the man. And so I, I believe it's Dan. I have a note here somewhere. Unfortunately, I write in like size three font when I, when I make notes. But you guys aren't going to mind if I tell you that um, the reason why I, I'm not going to tell you that the tribes, I can't remember exactly, but the reason why that's also seems so prevalent to us is because when we come to the new Testament, there's four gospels. Mm. Is there a reason why there's four gospels and not six and there, and there are not three or not four or excuse me, not five. Yeah, certainly because God ordained that there would be four gospels. And in the first gospel, we have Matthew referring to the, the kingdom of God more than any other person in the New Testament over and over again, referencing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come. Jesus has come to fulfill the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is among you. And that kingdom is represented by that lion. And then you have Mark. And you see so, so much of Jesus just all the time on the move, going, moving, just constantly serving. He is the servant, and, and the, the symbol of that servant is the ox. And then we see in Luke, because Luke is that doctor who's writing to Greeks, right, who are so obsessed with this um, ideal man or this perfect man. What does the perfect man look like? And so he so commonly refers to Jesus. He, he records Jesus as referring to himself more than any other as the son of man over and over again. And, and Jesus is that man, the face of the man. And then also we have the fourth gospel, which just seems to soar so much higher above all the others, where Jesus is so clearly revealed as God the Son. That is that eagle. 
That is the four faces of these, these beings that are guarding the presence of God. These beings are on the earth. Ezekiel seeing them on the earth. And they're guarding the presence of God. What does that mean? As you, as you read further, that means the presence of God is here. The presence of God is, is above. The, he's sitting right above your circumstance. Ezekiel, everything seems hopeless, but the presence of God is He is working in the middle of the failure. He is redeeming the, and the, the hearts that are turned to him. right? Because so often we want to see God work, but we're not so much submitted to what he's already revealed to us in our life through his word. It is the hearts of those, no doubt Ezekiel, that is already submitted to those things where he's going to see God work. So that is that is kind of the explanation of the four faces. Um, oh, and also this bit about them not turning as they go. Um, it, it's, 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 I'm, I'm going to touch on it because I said I would. A lot of people want to read this text and they want to insist this is a confirmation of UFOs. Um, I'm going to say simply that this cannot confirm UFOs. The reason being is because Ezekiel tells us what these are in chapter 10. That would mean that they are identified and not unidentified. They're not unidentified flying objects. They're also standing on the earth, and we, we learn later that their wheels are on the earth, and they're right next to their wheels. Anyway, the bit that I'm going to say, because I don't, I don't, um, if this doesn't pertain to you, I apologize, and you can just completely ignore everything I'm saying. I do understand um, there is a large portion of the population that believes in UFOs. If you are one of those people, or even claim to have had an experience with a UFO, I don't take that lightly. Um, I do understand that people deal with very traumatic things, and I'm not mocking you. There is um, something supernatural that does occur, and I am not saying that something that has been in flight and has been unidentified um, has not occurred to you. I, I would submit to you in full confidence it is a demonic attack. I have looked a lot into this, and if this is something that has affected you or someone that you know, I am more than willing to talk to you more about it afterwards. But this cannot confirm UFOs because these are in fact identified, and we do know that they're angelic creatures, and they guard the presence of God, who wants nothing but your good, not what UFOs tend to want. Anyway, I say I say that UFOs. I'm not. Anyway, I think you guys get my point. It gets weirder, though. Guys, remember, this was a normal day. He was just walking on the River Chibar, and all of a sudden, the great fiery whirlwind came out of the north. But 13, as the likeness of the living creatures, as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning. And the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of lightning. So we're learning, basically, that they don't turn. They just zip back and forth, right? They move whatever direction they want to move, um, and they move like lightning. They move fast. They go wherever they want. Verse 15, Now as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. So these living creatures are, in fact, where Ezekiel is seeing them, on the earth. And there is a wheel right next to them that is right beside them. 
Okay, so I, I'm just going to, if you guys don't know already, we're kind of looking at like the chassis of God's throne right now, his, his chariot throne. We're looking at the undercarriage. We're looking at the, you know, not the 400 horsepower engine, but the four chair of engine is what we're kind of seeing right now. Um, it sounds really weird, and I understand that. But at the same time, you can't give Ezekiel too much of a hard time in his explanation because he's never seen anything like this before. And as soon as you get to heaven, he can point at the throne and say, that's what I was talking about, okay? Let off, because how are you going to write about it, right? If you've never even seen, if you've never seen an elephant, if no one had ever seen an elephant before, and all of a sudden you saw an elephant, how are you going to explain it to him, right? Well, yeah, it's got these giant legs and this itty-bitty little tail, and I don't know if it was a nose or not, but it was really long, right? So it's it gets weirder, but we have to give him credit because he recorded it for us. And it is it is a witness to the fact that God's God's presence is here. God is not far off. God has not forsaken us. So I'll read 15 again. Now, as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their workings was like the color of barrel. And so barrel, a lot of scholars believe it's some yellowish to gold color, but um, of the mineral, it could be many colors. Um, there are many different colors of that, uh, that gemstone. It said all four had the same likeness. The appearance of their workings was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. So we're told that these wheels that are next to the cherubim, which we learn in chapter 10, these are in fact cherubim, have wheels in the middle of them that seem to go the other way. Um, I'll just read the next verse because it gets even cooler and weirder, you know. As for their rims, right, so God's got, he's got blades on his chariot. I apologize if most of you don't understand that term. I was born in 1990s, so um, he's got big rims on his chariot is what we learned. And so, and it says, and Ezekiel says, they were so high, they were awesome, right? And their rims were full of eyes all around the four of them. I don't really know what that means. Uh, what are the eyes? Is it is it light that is gleaming off of them that just causes a reflection in a way or a fraction in a way that it looks like maybe th like their eyes or are they in fact eyes? But the way it is recorded in the scripture for us here, no doubt, as we learn the way that God moves, that he is his chariot and, and the way Ezekiel seeing it is on the earth. It moves whichever way it wants to. It doesn't even have to turn. It's like moving like thought, right? You just think it and you start moving that way. He doesn't have to turn his face, right? And for a creature with four creatures, excuse me, for a creature with four faces, you wouldn't have to turn your face either because you've got four of them. Uh, you just go which way you're thinking. You just move in that direction. But this, no doubt, is talking about the sight of God, the fact that he sees all things, right? He is there. There is always a, at least a one-person audience, right? That is God, a one-being audience, I should say. Three persons, one being. Um, and their rims were full of eyes all around the four of them. When the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them, when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went, because there the spirit went, and the wheels were lifted together with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. So 
the power that's in the wheels that is moving this chariot, which, excuse me, I keep referring to it as that, but it is in fact, um, this is the under, uh, this is what is underneath. This is bearing up the throne of God. We'll see that in the coming verses. The, the spirit or the power of the wheel is actually from the cherubim. They are the things driving it. They're all in unison. So this is no doubt talking about the, the, um, the complete harmony, right, of the way God functions. There is, as it, it we'll read further, verse 21, when those went, these went. Okay. And when those stood, these stood. And when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up together with them. So we assume that the those were the cherubim and the these were the wheels, if you care. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. There's complete harmony. God's moving in a way where there's no division in it. God's spirit is doing what it, um, what it desires. And this is what, this is what Ezekiel is witnessing. The likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. Right? So this is, this is where he gets into the description of what is bearing up the throne of God. And it's kind of cool because you read earlier that he gets to the, the eyes and the wheels and he says, it was awesome. Right? And so now we're going to have to deal with a man who can barely get past the wheels as he tries to explain God. But this will be fun. It says in verse 23, And under the firmament their wings spread out straight, the cherubim, one toward another. Each one had two which covered one side, and each one had two which covered the other side of the body. When they went, they heard the noise. I heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult, like the noise of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And again, you gotta, you just gotta imagine, you gotta be in his, you gotta try and put yourself in his shoes. How do you describe this, right? He doesn't have something to compare this to other than the sound of rushing waters, mighty waters, which can be incredibly loud. But you know, what does this actually sound like? Is this a, like, is this an overbearing sound of like a jet engine? or the, the biggest locomotive you've ever seen is like the sound of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty. A voice came down from above the firmament that was over their heads. Whenever they stood, they let down their wings. And above the firmament over their heads was like the likeness of a throne, an appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness above it. Also, from the appearance of his waist and upward I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of a fire all around within, within it. And from the appearance of his waist down and downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with, a, with brightness all around it. So you guys just have to imagine the fact that there is God sitting on top of this throne, which is on a, far, a, a massive expanse above these magnificent angels that move in whatever direction as fast as they want without turning. Right, and now Ezekiel is explaining to us the presence of God, the mighty presence. Just, I, I spent a lot of time dwelling on this, so I'm, sh- I'm sorry if it's not blowing your mind the way it is mine. But what it speaks so loudly to me about is the futility of an idol, because you hear Jeremiah in Jerusalem saying it is so futile to build yourself an idol. He goes through that description of who you know, the, the man who cuts down a tree, brings it home, uses part of it to make an idol uses another part of it 
to, to kindle a fire and cook his, um, cook his meal with and the other part to heat his house. What kind of idol is that? You get down on your face and you, you worship the thing that you cut down earlier. And, and Ezekiel's saying this God is sitting on this throne that moves however it wants, as quick as it wants. It's everywhere, wherever it, whenever it wants to be. It sees everything all at once. He's opened heaven and allowed Ezekiel to see these things. The thing that speaks the loudest to me about this passage is as people that know Jesus, as people that have experienced his spirit, and I pray to God, have received his gift of salvation and been born again, right? What do you have to take to the world if you can't tell them God is present? What message do you, because everything, nothing's new under the sun. Everything in the world's already been done. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're finding new cures, but that's because we're creating new diseases. All of the, all of the thrills of life have already been tried. Solomon would say that to you over and over again. The things that we need, what, what is it that we can walk out of this door and sell ourselves to, to try to experience that's going to be greater than God that someone hasn't already pursued and then committed suicide over because it was so lacking. If you don't have the message that Ezekiel's bringing right now, that the man, that the one that was on this throne that is so indescribable has a likeness of a man. He came down and he revealed himself to me. If we don't have that message on our mouth, if we're not speaking that message to our children. If we're not speaking that every time we have the occasion that someone asks us for the hope that's within us, to give us a reason for the hope that's within us. What do we actually have? People don't need theology. Okay. People need theology. I take that back. People, people need to experience more than theology. They need to experience the God who loves them, the God that is self-sacrificial in every way, because what we've seen in the face of Jesus Christ is prophesied for hundreds and thousands of years and is fulfilled. And in hindsight, we can say it's clearer than any other revelation given in the history of the world is that God is self-sacrificially loving his creation since the beginning of time. And he's telling Ezekiel, I'm right here. I care so much for you, right? And also at the same time, I am the Lord of this circumstance. The people that don't submit to me, the people that don't bow the knee to me, I am working these things out for good. Paul says in, in um, Romans 8 that we know that um, he works all things together for the good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. And earlier in that chapter, in chapter eight, he makes reference to the creation, desiring to see the longing of the consummation of the sons of God being, being adopted. And, and he looks back on the saints of old and how you can look back and you can see even in the rebellious nation of Israel, the saints of old were cared for. They were taken care of. God looked after their head. He covered them. Right? They went through stuff. They, but at the end of the day, what they had was the presence of God. Right? We know that all things work. We can look at that verse in its context and say, we know that all these things work out for the good of those who love God, of those who are the called according to his purpose. Because he's going to call you and he's going to work in your life according to his purpose if you have placed your faith in Christ. If you have said, Lord, this isn't of me, this is of you. 
God's saying to Ezekiel, buddy, I love you. Don't stress out. I'm right here. I got a, I got a word for you. Bring it to the nations. Bring it, bring it to, to the Israelites. Preach it loud and broad. Because he's already, as I said, he already knows that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Um, the, a letter from Jeremiah has made it to them. And he is, in fact, aware that Jeremiah has been prophesying in Jerusalem this the city is going to be leveled. There is no hope for what you now see. You need to go into captivity willingly, and you need to allow the chastisement of God to restore you to the place that you should have been all along. For the, for the men and the women, for us, I, pr- I pray to God for us who are walking upright, who are living a life that is um, every day that is in objection to the desires of our flesh that is seeking God, God will, God can and God will open heaven for us. There are the date that always comes to my mind, and I won't go through it, but the date that always comes to my mind is September 12, 2016. God opened heaven, and I um, I cried on my bedroom floor for about three and a half hours. And God opened heaven because that's how God works. The ones that are broken, guys. I was living in a legalistic Christianity. No doubt where Ezekiel is. I'm not saying he's not a holy man who's set apart, who's determined to be different from the culture he's in. But for a priest, everything's already written out for you. There's no improvising. Everything's already been determined. God's going to take a priest. He's going to make him into a prophet. He's going to put his word in his mouth. We're going to read in chapter 3 that he takes... The hand comes forth to Ezekiel and he tells him to eat the scroll. So it's going to be, it's going to be better in your stomach, but in your mouth it's going to be sweet as honey. Right? You keep that word in, and you guys have heard this before. You keep that word in, it's going to, it's going to make you rot from the inside. But when you open your mouth and you share it with the people who need to hear it, the people God gives you the opportunity to speak it to, it's going to, it's going to be sweet like honey. You're going to be filled with that bread that Jesus said that we don't know of. The bread that I have is to do the work of my father, right? Jesus isn't, Jesus for the first time is revealing himself as Messiah to the woman at the well. And can you imagine the feeling that is coursing through his body where he's held that in? No doubt people have realized it, but this is the first time he's publicly declared. And I say it's public, it's kind of in private, but this is the first time he's declared, I am the Messiah. Right, speaking the word of God from the word of God to a woman who needs to hear it. That is that's the job that we've been given. That's the, that's the job that Ezekiel is going to find himself being given. And it is because of this circumstance. You're going to learn as as you go through this book, and I pray you do, because I don't know if I'll get the opportunity to continue teaching. As you go through this book, the message to Ezekiel is I'm sending you to I'm sending you um to the to people of the house of Israel, but they're rebellious people. They're not going to hear you. I'm going to tell you what to say, but they're stiff-necked. They're, you're not going to have fruit, right? And it's it sounds like a terrible, you know, as far as being a priest, you just get to do your duties and things don't really have the opportunity to go wrong as long as things are kept in order. As far as the priesthood in Jerusalem, 
right? There are men that are committed their entire life to it. Now God's saying, I'm going to give you words, but no one's going to heed them, right? But the fulfillment comes in the fact that what Ezekiel's doing is he's listening to the voice of God. And that is, again, that is what we're all called to. You guys can fill in that blank. Wherever it is in your life where you know that things could be different. And I, I say this often, but I firmly believe in the power of confession, not only to God, but to a brother or a sister who's going to hold you accountable. A person who you know that you can trust. Your pastor, your pastor's wife. I mean, seriously. There are, I'm not going to put them on the hot spot, but they're on the hot seat. But there are people in this room who I know you can confess your sin to, and, and they will they will break down with you, they will cry with you, they'll hold your hand, they'll pray with you, they'll get you through these things because, again, God isn't just some theological system; He's a reality. He's got victory for His servants. He's got victory for those who love Him. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about. The 26, it says, Above the firmament, over their heads, was the lightness of a throne, an appearance like a sapphire stone. On the lightness of the throne was the lightness of appearance of a man high above it. So God is appearing in the figure, right? He's got the appearance of a man. It also says that same thing about the angels. Their likeness, their, their form is like a man. Of course, you see that they've got different feet. They've got four faces. And, you know, you can give one person a dirty look and... You don't even, you can just wake up out of bed and someone thinks you're giving them a dirty look and you take them off. Imagine if you had four faces and they got four dirty looks and you'd be in a heap of trouble. So good thing we've only got one face, but um, essentially what he's saying is just in basic form. This this one looks like a man. Also from the appearance of his waist, oh, so I have already read that. I'll read it again, 27. Of his waist and upward I saw, as it were, the color of amber, the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around, like the appearance of rainbow, of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the lightness of the glory of God. So when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a vo the voice of one speaking. Of course, this jumps into chapter two. I'm not going to read chapter two. You know that. And he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. So again, Guys, remember, this is the normal day. He's walking by the canal, Chibar, right? He's doing his normal thing. The heavens open up. He sees the glory of God. God begins to speak to him in this circumstance. And why? It's because everyone wants to see a miracle, right? That's not why. But I just think everyone wants to see a miracle, right? So that we can be, we can be confident about what we know that, about the reality of God, that God is real. And... Again, I'll say, I've said it before, the reality is not the thing that's going to change your life. It is the word. People want to, the, the reality, the miracle is not the thing that's going to change your life. It is the word. People say they want to see a miracle or people say they want to see an angel, right? I've actually read about occurrences of people actually where angels have entered their circumstance and all they can do is freeze and fear, right? John, before the angel, fell on his face and he said, don't do that. I'm a, I'm a servant of Jesus just like you are. John also fell on, he fell down as dead in Revelation chapter 1, and Jesus lifted him up. Ezekiel here, he fell down, he fell on his face, and the Lord filled him with the Spirit and brought him to his feet. He said, stand up, right? He said, stand up, and then it says in the next, word, the next verse in 
2 verse 2, chapter 2 verse 2. Then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet. Right, and that is what we need to stand in God's presence. That is, uh, that is what Elijah says when he, um, when he confronts Ahab, the wicked king. He says, "I'm, I come from the presence of God, who I stand before daily." Right, and he he rebukes him, and it is because he's in his presence. That is that is the glorious gift that we have. We look around and we see things that we want right? The lust of the eyes. And then we see things that we experience because our eyes have lusted after it. And we're, we're not battling the lust of the flesh. And then we have to go through the reality that God's saying his ways are higher than our ways. And we have to deal with the fact that the thing that that's promising isn't as good to us as what God has for us. And that's the pride of life. We have to deal with that every single day. And we struggle with that. And the psalmist, you guys remember Asaph, who's written... He wrote, he wrote a lot of the Bible. The psalmist struggled with that. You guys remember Asaph said essentially like, I, I struggle in the midst of a perverse generation and all the wicked people, um, all the righteous people, they, they boast in the, in, in the things that they have and they don't take care of the poor. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but you guys know what I'm talking about. He, he says, they're unjust and they're unloving. And then I see the people that love God and that serve him and we're afflicted. He said, and I'm so, I'm so divided in this. And he said, but then I went into the temple of the Lord, into the house of the Lord, and I beheld their end. Asaph said, everything made, made sense to me at that point, right? Because you walk in to God's house and he's talking about the outer courts where he's able to, um, to see, and then and you get uh, into the inner courts. He doesn't go in. We're not. I'm assuming Asaph isn't speaking directly of the Holy of Holies, um, but you see where the priests come and they make that initial blood sacrifice, right? And an unrighteous person who isn't trusting in the provision of God isn't going to see a need. For the blood sacrifice in their life. But what Asaph is seeing as the priest and understanding these things is that there is a separation between God and man, but God has made a way and it is through the blood of an innocent sacrifice. And there's blood everywhere in the temple, right? There's blood all over the walls. There's a gory image of the fact that we have broken a relationship with God through our rebellion. And the only way to restore it is through the death of something that did not did not sin against God in our stead. It is innocent before God, and we're offering that sacrifice up. And he, and at that point, I wish I recalled. You know, I wish I um, memorized these verses. But he said, you know, at that point, uh, his his entire mindset changed because I beheld their end, and I understand now that. The wicked come to nothing, but the righteous are, they're made firm. They stand upright in God's house. And that is such a broken paraphrase. It's so funny though, because I was, I was literally thinking of that Psalm and I was making a note of it. Um, by the way, I don't read any of my notes. It's not like I really can, but uh, I was making a note of it, hopefully to remember it. And Sheila walked in and uh, she didn't even know I was in there, but she just wanted to talk to me about Asaph. 
And it was literally the last thing I wrote about. Um, the last thing that came to my mind as far as closing the message, right? Because Ezekiel falls down and the Lord fills him, fills him up and stands him on his feet. He's, he's going to give him a message. He's going to show him, I have for you what the nations need to hear, right? And so often we get discouraged by how people are functioning around us. It doesn't seem, why is my life so hard? I, I understand that. I get that. I'm, I'm not speaking from a place where I don't resonate with that. I've experienced things. There's things in my life that are going on right now. I just want to melt down. If it hadn't been for eight years in this church and the constant ministry of Jesus Christ and witnessing him coming down and ministering to a man who says, I have nothing, that I can't do this, God. I need you to fix this in my heart so I can take the next step, even if it is mechanical, right? Because the end is different for the righteous than it is for the wicked. To stay on the, we're pilgrims, we're passing through. God will fill you up to overflowing. Jesus stood in the marketplace, raised his hands, he shouted, he said, come to me, all you are thirsty and drink. I'll, I'll fill you, I'll overflow you. Rivers, torrents, right, of living water will overflow from you. And that is what we want. That is what we need. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a message that God has for every single one of us. And it's so cliche to say God has a wonderful plan for your life. But the truth is God wants to deliver you from your sin, from whatever sin besets you. He wants to stand you on the rock. He wants to make you a firm foundation so when the storms of life come, you don't crumble and crash to the ground. Because there are storms. We go through them. Even if you don't, you live in perfect health, your parents are probably going to die before you. And you're going to have to deal with that. If you don't have God, if you, don't, if you can't say, I know the one who sits on an unseen throne beyond that horizon, if we can't bring that to a world that's broken, guys, there's, we don't have much of a message. Right? But we do have the message of Jesus Christ. We have the message of the God who humbled himself, the word who became flesh, and he, we beheld his glory. He dwelt among us. And um, that's kind of off topic, but it's not off topic, but I, I, I'm kind of getting away from the text in Ezekiel 1. But essentially, Ezekiel is being called in these first three chapters. It's going to be told what his, uh, what his ministry is, and Ezekiel is going to live it out. He's going he's gonna to live that ministry by example. He's going to show these people there is something you don't see, and it's greater than what you're experiencing, but yet you trust the false prophets. I pray to God we don't trust the false prophets. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I ask you to comfort us as we humbly come before you. Lord, I pray that you make your presence evident. Lord, as we acknowledge before you, we have nothing to offer. Lord, that you want to reveal to us your glory in a place that seems so desperate. Lord, if we've lost everything, Lord, if, if we have family members that have lost everything, if we're going through something where our life just isn't the way we planned it to be, Father, I pray 
that as we empty ourselves, you fill us up. I pray that we're, we're left encouraged as we leave this place, Father, that we recognize this is about your work. Lord God, whatever you have for us, whatever your providential hand has as we step out these doors, I pray that we would focus not on what we can see, but on who we know you to be. Father, that you are gracious, you're loving, you've been so self-sacrificially loving from the beginning of time. Father, I pray you make that a reality to us, not just words this day. Help us humble ourselves in our prayer closet. Show us, Lord, how you want to change our life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.